Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, the first episode in our 2007 series. The series about the movies nominated for Best Picture in 2007. 2007 movies, 2008 ceremony, a distinction that I'm going to continue to make, even though Ken protests every time. It's just... <laughs> is it annoying you still? It, 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 it's going to get there. It's It's... Well, guess what? I'm going to keep doing it every episode because it's part of the intro now. And, you know, we have bits on this podcast, and that's one of the bits I decided, I guess. I just, like, briefly black out for that part. Like, I glaze (laughs) over, you know, just like... "Mm." So we made it to a second series after the roaring, unprecedented success of our first series in the 1975 movies. 1975 movies, 1976 ceremony, obviously. We were not canceled yet. (laughs) We've not been canceled yet. Ken, how do you feel about series number two? Are you excited? I am I am excited. These are these are uh, these are some exciting movies actually to to delve into. I'm I'm looking forward to this. Well, part of why I'm so excited is because because this is the 2007 movies. We all, all three of us saw these contemporaneously when they came out, and uh, for our previous series, none of us were alive. Well, Ken, you weren't alive in '75, were you? I was in spirit. Okay, yeah, your soul was alive because uh, yes. those who don't know, Ken's a very old soul. So Ken's soul was about 40. In 1975, yes, lined up for Jaws. Yes, I was also I was also lined up for uh, the best years of their lives, and 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 I'm pretty sure it's a wonderful life. Yeah, so did not line up for Barry Lyndon. Even even Ken's old soul has its limits, and Barry Lyndon is beyond those limits. Yes, um, but like I think that these movies are probably when we the three of us started hanging out in a movie capacity. At least we hung out for baseball reasons before this, but then once these movies came out. This is when, like, the three of us started to, like, hang out after school because we were really cool in high school and hung out and, like, watched Gone Baby Gone or whatever yes. <laughs> in a classroom on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> yes. We- also, I don't know about you guys, but, like, I turned 17 this year. So it was also the year where I could drive myself to the movies and watch R-rated movies and go to Blockbuster and rent R-rated movies without my mom. Yes. For those – for anybody listening in, Blockbuster was a place you could go. And physically rent, <laughs> physically rent DVDs at the time to watch films it, and VHSs. It was exciting. VHSs were still kicking in two thousand seven. So, like, I was seventeen then. This was fifteen years ago. So, one, almost half my life ago. Two, how was that fifteen years ago? We are almost dead. Yeah. Um. So, Atonement. Atonement's the first movie alphabetically in the two thousand seven series. So, we got Atonement. Um. TJ. When did you first see Atonement? I'm assuming it was around the time it was released. Uh, well, I first became aware of Atonement um, in the first grade when I learned the alphabet. It was A as for <laughs> Atonement. Um, I don't believe you. Uh, no, I actually first time was I saw B it, for bereavement. Uh, B was for diving bell in the butterfly. Um, <laughs> wow! No, yeah. Uh, so. First time I saw this was 27 hours ago, 26 hours ago. Um, Wait, really? Yeah, I did you not, didn't see this at I the time? I did not see this. Wow. When it came out. I didn't see it in the intervening years. You were um, a holdout wow. on this one. Okay. Um, I don't remember particularly like boycotting it or anything. I can say, and we'll get into this more later, um, the trailer would have done nothing for me, and the sort of like romantic, stuffy costume drama thing still is not something that I like run to the theater to see. Um, I feel like the three of us lament the stuffy costume dramas presence at the Oscars every year. That's something we always complain about. But like, even when they're good, I'm I'm like, oh wow, I'm surprised think, that was a I, good movie. You know, I think this is pretty good. 
I mean, it's we'll, we'll, get, we'll get into it. But, we'll get know. to that shortly. But uh, that's that's just by by way of saying um, I, I I I wasn't avoiding it on purpose, but it wasn't something that would have uh, you know scratched an itch for me. I I, I was gonna say I I enjoy the stuffy costume dramas, but yeah, there is there's you're an old soul. There well, but that said, there's something to be there. There's the the criticism I think is legitimate in the fact that it seems like every year they have to recognize if there is one, and it's getting a lot of praise and and a lot of uh, eyeballs they have to recognize that old costume drama well we'll talk about joe wright's filmography i think he's got a few in that in the queue upcoming and yeah i agree though yeah i i think that they're kind of like um they kind of get in by default in certain categories that's actually also why best costume to with all respect to the talented costumers in hollywood best costume is like my least favorite category at the oscars number one because it's notoriously hard to predict and the three of us are obsessed over oscar predictions but also because it's usually filled out by you know stuffy costume dramas which are you know not my favorite i i will say though the the green dress kira knightley wears in this is a beautiful dress it is is. yeah i don't wear dresses but if i did i would want that dress i'm glad you brought that up because again as the as the resident very online person in the group who spends way too much time on twitter uh Women really, even to this day, like really like love that dress and like use it as inspiration for various outings. Like that's like a a uh, a famous green dress in the annals of movie history in the twenty first century. Is the green dress he wears in Atonement? I go. Wow. I go further. It is the best. Uh, it is the best uh, example or pop of color in the entire movie. It is by far, in a way, the the best the best looking thing I think in the whole movie. So shout out then to Academy Award nominee for this, Jacqueline Duran. Ah, well, and multi-time, multi-time Academy Award winner, uh, just not for this one. I'm trying to think of who she would have lost to offhand at the Oscars for Best Costume, and I don't know. Elizabeth the Golden Age. Uh, ah. Uh, so a yes. stuffy costume drama. Actually, yes. le- I guess less stuffy. Certainly a costume drama, just less stuffier than the first Elizabeth. Yeah, the first, uh, the first 50 minutes of this movie are very golden. In the latter hour, fifteen of this movie are very brown, so I think that's a good ass- assessment that the green really pops. You know, it is the most visually striking piece of color in the movie for sure. Um, Ken, when did you first see Atonement? I'm gonna go on a limb and say it was earlier than TJ. It was uh, first time I ever saw this was in college. Uh, freshman okay. year, so it, so you also missed it when it came out. I did. Right? I saw it about a year, okay. year and a half after. Uh, okay. Actually, about yeah, a little over a year, I guess, after it it was released. And then I watched it again, actually, just a couple of years ago uh, during the first year of COVID. Um, so I, I had a pretty decent uh, time span in the middle where I didn't watch it, and then of course just watched it uh, this weekend. So uh, I I would be interested, Josh. You, I think, saw. I, I, my understanding is you saw it when it came out. Uh, have you? I did. Did yeah. you see it in the interim between then and now? Um, no. Uh, I know that I watched it at least twice around like the first half of two thousand eight, uh, or like you know winter two thousand eight. I don't. I don't think I saw it in theaters. Um, I think I probably saw it on DVD both times. Um, but I watched it at least twice then, and then did not see it again for. Uh, 14 and a half years and then I watched it last night for the first time in 
14 plus years. We were texting earlier and uh, you commented on something that I thought was rather interesting. Your your take on it now versus when you first saw it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, the reason I wanted to choose this year for discussion is like these movies have always been very special to me because like this was like when the three of us started to hang out in the context of movies, but also when like I was in my first film class, like I was kind of discovering movies for the first time. So like, you know, I was 17, 18 and like developing tastes for the first time really right and like so i'll watch stuff that i saw for the first time around this age and like feel differently about things and you would hope so because i'm i'm a lot older now i've seen a lot more movies now and my tastes have developed since then but in the case of this movie i I watched it once or twice when i was 18 then i didn't see it for many years then i watched it again this week and i feel the exact same about it now as i did then so i was like as i said my text to you guys i was weirdly proud of my 18 year old self for like coming up with what I think is the correct take because I, I stand by the take and that's not usually the case. Normally I'm very embarrassed of my movie takes from from my younger self, but I think uh, I think I'll spot on with this one. If I'm being honest, I don't know that my I, I think I agree with you actually. I don't think my opinion has really all changed all that much. I will admit that between a couple of years ago and now, I think there was more I noticed and appreciated uh, than I did the first go around. Uh, if I'm being if I'm being perfectly honest, the first time I watched this film, I was more appreciative than I was interested in it. Uh, it was kind of I agree. boring. Uh, it, it did not. It did not compel me enough. Well, honestly, the biggest like um, change between watching it, you know, 14 plus years ago and watching it now is the Shersha Ronan of it all. Because like she was 13, uh, nominated for Best Supporting Actress as like a 13 year old for this role. And, like, obviously that was the first time I'd seen her in anything. I assume it was the first time either of you had seen her in anything. And now she's one of our finest actresses and one of our most celebrated, celebrated actresses. In this film, she's still a couple years removed from uh, The Lovely Bones, which is, I think, the first time where she led a film. That's true. Yeah, so, that's true. Yeah, she's still uh, – she's but uh, – and we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, later. She gets an Oscar nomination out, of, out of this yeah. one. But, like, having, you know, now had – years of seeing her in movies and like being a fan of hers like she's she's great in this and like i i knew that even you know 14 years ago i'm like oh that kid is really good but now seeing her having seen her in her 20s act i'm like she was really she was already really really good at, at 13 or however old she was when she made this ken where are you at on Shersha, or i'm sorry tj where are you at on the Shersha ronan she's great uh <laughs> um i okay, good yeah no i like her a lot um even Sometimes you come in with hot takes, and I was worried you were about to say you come in with a hot, I hate Trisha Rowan oh, take. Oh, no, I, I think she, really I, I really like Lady Bird. She's wonderful in Lady Bird. Um, yes. I liked Little Women. I think she's great in Little Women. Yes. I even like the like smaller roles that she's been doing in the Wes Anderson films. Um, yeah. I will say I saw her in another Joe Wright movie called Hannah, and I think Hannah is just a steaming pile of shit. Yeah, she's like a CIA weird, like a CIA operative kind of movie. Is that what that is? Yeah, fun fact. Uh, that was written in the program at VFS at Vancouver Film School. Uh, oh, nice. Where I went to, yeah. And apparently, like, everybody was like, this script is garbage. Um, and then <laughs> it got sold. Um, but they were right. It's garbage and it's a garbage film. But uh, yeah, so no, no, no. I like her. I like her a lot. Um, she will win an Oscar one day. Um, in this film, I think she's good. She's better than most like kid performances i don't know that i'm like super wild about her performance um 
it, it's clear watching it that you're like, okay, this person, you know, <laughs> girls got it, you know, like the kids, kids got some talent. Um, but I don't know. It wasn't like totally blown away really by any of the performances. Um, I would, I, I would actually agree. I think, I think everybody's impressed by the fact that at what she's probably about 12, 11 or 12 when they're filming this, she has a maturity that you didn't necessarily expect from the actress of that age in a movie like this, particularly the subject matter that her, the, her version of the character, because we see the character at three different ages. Um, she, she definitely has a grasp on the character and the events going on and the tone really well. And it's all impressive. I agree with TJ. It is, I, I'm reserved uh, in my praise, I guess, to the extent that, there's a bit of pushback on my end regarding the Oscar nomination. I don't know that I completely okay. go along with that. Uh, and if I'm being completely honest, I think Vanessa Redgrave's performance, brief performance in the end of the film might be my favorite. Particularly, there's a moment uh, she's in her dressing room that I think wins me over. Before we get to our friend, do it. Can, I, can I set up the movie? But then we can talk a little bit more brass tacks. Okay. Um, so it takes place in several timelines, but the the first one is 1935 London, so between the wars, at a uh, very, very nice uh, country house in England uh, where this family is having some kind of outing. Uh, and the family consists of Cecilia, played by Keir Knightley, and uh, Bryony, who's 13, played by young Shersh Ronan. And uh, there's a grounds... I guess he's a groundskeeper, played by James McAvoy, Robbie. And he's a family friend who's kind of also the benefactor of this family's father. He was comes from a, a lower income family, but was put through Oxford, I think, by the by the rich family's father. Yeah, right. It's Cambridge or Oxford. It's one of the yeah. It's Cambridge, one of the two. Yeah. It's one of the doesn't two. Big... Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And uh, Robbie and Cecilia James McAvoy and Keira Knightley have a a, a blossoming romance uh, that Bryony kind of witnesses from distance and doesn't uh, quite understand, being only thirteen. And having a imagination for embellishment. Yes. So she's a the movie opens with her at a typewriter writing a play. So she is a a precocious and creative thirteen year old. Um, and uh, some people come to the house for a a dinner party of sorts, including Robbie and including uh, their older brother. And uh, their older brother brings around this guy named Paul, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, who's kind of creepy. And uh, their cousins are their their cousins are staying at the house because their parents are getting a divorce. And I'm I'm kind of going off the top here, but uh, so I guess Bryony witnesses a few like a few happenings between Robbie and Cecilia, and kind of assumes the worst about these happenings, even though if if I if I may, it's it's if we're going to summarize the whole film or at least a little bit of background. Or I'm I'm summarizing the first ten minutes right now. But sure, go ahead. but I think it's it's key to note that Bryony, as you learn throughout the film, she certainly got some childhood crush or something on Robbie, and that may or, that may or may not be playing into, or it's probably more may uh, playing into her interpreting scenes she's seeing between Robbie and Cecilia, uh, and in, yes, interpreting them to be kind of wrong and naughty because yeah, their sexual so, nature. That's actually like one of my one of my first problems with this this whole setup is that there's like three separate misunderstandings between Bryony and 
Robbie Cecilia. Three separate misunderstandings that all build up to a um, tragic misunderstanding, I guess is what we'll call it. Um, really, the, the thrust of the plot is the, the, t- the twins, the cousins, run away and go missing. And so everyone at this dinner party goes out, search, searches the grounds for the twins. And in the search of the grounds, uh, Bryony and her flashlight uh, comes across um, their, their cousin, played by Juno Temple, Lola, um, being assaulted by a un, an unseen man in a tuxedo. I was going to say, we'll say a tux- yeah, right? dark-haired, tuxedoed individual. Yes, who, yes. who runs off before Brian can get a good look at him, but she assumes it's Robbie because of three consecutive misunderstandings leading up to this moment. So she's got on high alert for Robbie's... Um, she thinks he's like a sexual deviant for reasons she, we sex, can get into. She so uses the phrase sex mania courtesy of her cousin, yeah, that's Juno right. Temple. Yes. And so... Um, uh, the scared and, you know, sexually assaulted Lola kind of hears Bryony say, it was Robbie, wasn't it? And she just kind of nods and goes along with it. And Robbie gets sent away to jail, even though he's not the one who uh, assaulted Lola. But to get to get to this point, though, there again, there's three separate occasions. Uh, Bryony watches Robbie and Cecilia have a, uh, I guess, what what appears from a distance to be some kind of disagreement at the fountain on the grounds when, and then we, the movie kind of goes back and shows us the scene from Cecilia and Robbie's perspective after we see it from Bryony's perspective. And we actually see that it's kind of flirtatious and not actually um, heated at all. And then there's a second instance where uh, Robbie writes a love letter to Cecilia and gives it to Bryony to deliver. But (laughs) in in one of the, probably the hardest sell in the movie, he accidentally gives her like a, a, a practice note that that was like a, a joke note where he uses extremely profane anatomical language. And uh, instead of giving her the heartfelt note, he accidentally gives her the joke note that he wrote for his own amusement. And Bryony reads that and is um, perturbed by the language used. And again, as you said, Ken, she thinks he's a sex maniac. And then the third thing is Bryony walks in on um, Robbie and Cecilia's first physical romantic encounter in the library. Very posed, rigid uh, affair, if if we're being completely honest. But yes, she jumps to the conclusion that it's not entirely consensual. Exactly. Because of what she saw at the fountain and what she read in the letter. And also, like, Cecilia and Robbie just kind of leave the library without a word to Bryony and don't explain <laughs> what was going on to her. And, you know, from their perspective, it would, it would make sense to do that because they don't know that she has kind of been primed to assume the worst here. And they don't know that they're about to have a rape take place on the grounds and Brian is going to be the sole witness to it. So, um, so yeah, there's like three things that make Brian, think that Robbie's a bad dude and assumes it's Robbie assaulting Lola. TJ, what do you think of this setup? <laughs> how to get into this? It's hard to just comment on the setup without commenting on sort of how it's handled and where it goes. Um, I have a lot of questions, namely, I, I thought the word that was used um, in the letter in the letter, in the love letter. The yes, the quote unquote term. love letter, yes, the anatomical term, yes. yes. Yeah, I thought in England that wasn't that bad. Um, it's not that bad. So I was like, okay. And then two, um, but also to a thirteen-year-old in nineteen thirty-five. Yeah, but she says to her, "What's the worst word you can think of?" Mm, okay. That's um, anyway. Um, I was confused, and I think this was this was intentional within the film. But um, whether Bryony was aware, did she have ill intent? Was she aware that 
she was making a mistake? Was she deliberately lying? All of those things were uh, complicated by later revelations. Um, and an issue I have that I just kept kind of barking at the television was like, Kira Knightley, you could fix all of this. <laughs> Pretty, I don't know about How? all of this. How though? Um, what do you mean? Because a- another part of what the accusation was, was like, oh, I saw him um, forcefully taking Cecilia in the library. And what if she's like, no, he didn't. I was really into that, actually. Uh, I-, I think the crime has nothing to do with Cecilia, though. The crime has everything to do with Lola. So he, I mean, two things can be true. He could have had a consensual encounter with Cecilia, then a non-consensual con- encounter with Lola as well. I don't think it would have cleared. I don't think that would have cleared his name necessarily. Right, but I think it would have helped. Right? Sure, but I, I, I agree that it would. We don't actually see that scene play out. We don't see. We don't actually, other than her presenting the letter to her mother, we don't actually see her address the fountain or the, what she witnessed in the library. Um, she's just using the the. It's assumed she's explained that, and primarily using the letter, um, which also. Kira Knightley could have fought, could have been a little more, a uh, little more aggressive in in fighting back against being like it was not intended to be serious. I think to your point, TJ, the movie doesn't really show us the machinations of his arrest and him being sent to jail. It kind of just shows us a lot of like or his conviction. I mean, the, there's there yeah, are lots yeah, exactly. Of, it's, it's, it's circumstantial, and I'm sorry. They, they kind of hand wave. They kind of hand wave away. A this lot is of the part. yeah. This is the this is going to be the lawyer in me, but the like the, the police officer. You've only got Briny because Lola apparently didn't see who it was. She doesn't. She's not the one. She she's says the best witness. She says her eyes were covered. Right. Uh, yeah. And so you got Briny. You're telling me you saw him from across the pond in the dark for a moment when the flashlight was on their backs. And you could tell from his back running away in the dark. But also, I mean, not to not to victim blame, but Lola, um, there's some complicated things happening with Lola as well. Because uh, it's it's implied before the rape happens that um, Paul, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, has already gotten physical with Lola before this moment. Uh, at, the, at the dinner table, um, she has a, a, like a, a mark on her arm. That she blames on her two younger brothers, the twins, but it's kind of implied it was Paul who did it. And he has a scratch on his cheek that he says he got pulling the twins off of Lola, but that's not true. Like, we, we, we know that that's a physical altercation they had because there was, yeah, there's there's stuff going on there. And then later in the movie, obviously, we see Lola getting married to Paul like five years later, which, again, is uh, complicated and messed up, um, to say the least. But so we were talking about Trisha Ronan and her performance and how she captures like she's precocious, but also immature, you know, or, like she has a maturity to her. But like, I, I think what the first 50 minutes, what's so interesting about it is that the, the tragedy is that she thinks she's more mature than she actually is. And that's like the her fatal flaw and that what causes this ruins her life and her sister's life and Robbie's life, basically. I'm not sure how mature, I mean, I'm sure she thinks of herself as being mature, but I see it as her letting her imagination run away with her. I mean, she lives for writing stories and she's, she's concocting what she believes is happening through the window from afar. She's, I'm, there's a, there's a shot where she's talking to her cousin, Lola, again, played by Juno Temple. And it's like, it's the two of them sitting cross-legged on the bed and it's when 
Bryony is telling Lola about the letter from Robbie to Cecilia, and that's where she says, what's the worst word you can think of? And she's, and that's where they come up with the theory that Robbie's a sex maniac. And, like, seeing two teenage girls sitting cross-legged on a bed facing each other, kind of gossiping about this, like, talking about adult topics, as the, as they were, it really gave the sense of, like, oh, these are kids who think they're, who, who think they're not kids anymore, you know? Like, they're, the positioning and the composition of the shot and, and their posture gave across a very juvenile kid, you know, posture, but like, and they're talking about adult topics, but in a way that like adults, you know, a way that kids like acknowledge, Hey, we're talking about something naughty, but isn't this, isn't this great that we're like adult and can talk about this kind of stuff now, you know, they're in Brainy's bedroom, right? Which has got all of the dolls and everything. So I mean, it's a child's bedroom really that they're having this conversation as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like the movie, the movie opens with Bryony again finishing a play and showing it to her mom, who like praises her for it, and like she's like your first play. You know, it is like Bryony is itching to be an adult. You know, and like and because getting- as we find out later, she um, kind of made a pass at. I, I shouldn't say made a pass at Robbie. That sounds. But I had a schoolgirl crush and yeah. yes, exactly, and tested it out. Um, but also just all the ways in which the begin the first you know thirty ish minutes of the film sets her up to be uh, the kind of isolated weirdo. Um, you know they start doing the play. We don't want to do a play. Hey, let's go outside. Nobody runs away. Um, you know her always looking through the glass, being separated and isolated through uh, framing with windows. And then also if you watch like ways in which uh, Cecilia and Bobby are framed having a conversation they're done in shot reverse shot so they're always it's always a two shot uh when cecilia is lying on the grass talking with uh bryony when it's on cecilia it's a a two shot uh when it's on bryony she's in a single right so she's she's even there kind of um isolated and disconnected from the rest of them so i think it part of what she's doing part of what's motivating the the lie or the the mistake is um, the need to have a purpose, the need to be noticed, the need to make some sort of difference there. I don't know that she's necessarily thinking like, screw you, Bobby, but it's just kind of like, hey, don't forget how I can contribute to this. Don't forget about me. Like, I, I saw this, right? It's also telling the, the, the way the film is composed, visually speaking. This is a very light, bright um golden yes it's it's a dreamlike imagery like it's not it's kind of fuzzy around the edges it's it is uh not as stark and clear as the the rest of the film will be there this is i say i don't i don't like that choice i'm sorry um everything is so uh fuzzy soft focused low contrast um it's it's uh there's lots of hair lights that kind of white things out and several times I'm like, this looks like a perfume ad. Well, it, it there's literally, there is literally a scene when they're going, the, they're cutting back and forth between Robbie writing his letter and Cecilia getting ready for the evening's dinner and gathering. It does. It's Kira Knightley and it looks like she's in a, a Chanel ad or something. I mean that the, the imagery of her getting ready in her room is very much a kind of French, Haute fashion commercial. This is from Roger Ebert's review. 
Quote, the movie's opening act is like a breathless celebration of pure, heedless joy, a demonstration of the theory that the pinnacle of human happiness was reached by life in an English country house between the wars. At least for the wealthy. Um, the, that's, that's, that's actually the next sentence. Of course, that was more true for those upstairs than downstairs. That was the next sentence I, of his review. Yes. I don't know if I'd go so far to agree with him on the heedless. You mentioned the, the, the heedlessness of the era and, and how. But it is certainly a more innocent time period. Um. I gather, though, that this is because as we again, we're not as we're, we continue with the film, this whole period is being told. We know kind of it's being told backwards, kind of we're we're, we're going back. It's it's being told from a future time period, a future perspective. And it's very memory like yes. it's not yes. perfectly clear because it's it's being told or presented to us through memories, through flash memories. It's not as it's not as clear. It's just it's a, it's a pretty obvious like aesthetic choice to do that though was my problem. Like get it memory is foggy. So that that's the first 50 minutes. Can we jump or do you want to No, no, comment let's on let's else continue else? actually briefly re- addressing the rest of the film because um that's going to be essential for continuing on with this I think topic and discussion that we've got right now. So at the, at the 50 minute mark of a 2 hour and 2 minute movie, uh we jump ahead four years four and a half years i don't remember um to uh france in the war and uh robbie is now a soldier in world war ii um and we quickly learned that he was offered release from prison if he served in the war so he was in prison for four years and then enlisted we follow him for a, a long time like close to an hour and he meets up with cecilia again who's now working as a nurse um and they are still in love, but don't get much time together, like an hour, basically. And then he's got to ship off again. Um, they write to each other. He gets separated from his unit, I think, during a during a panzer attack, I believe, and ends up on the beach at Dunkirk for the Dunkirk evacuation, made famous by the 2017 Christopher Nolan film. Um, and, you know, made famous by the event itself, but, you know, in the movie world. <laughs> I'd never heard of Dunkirk when I saw Atonement, and now I know very well uh, Dunkirk because I saw the movie Dunkirk. And it's not until, I think, the last, the last like, 45 minutes in the movie, we finally meet Bryony again, who's now, like, 18 or 16 or something, or 17, and working as a nurse herself. And just now kind of realizing what she did and, like, kind of coming to terms with what she did the mistake she made she's still writing stories and she tells her friend that she's writing a story about a silly little girl who sees something that she doesn't quite understand but thinks she does and makes a terrible mistake so it's 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 lose the fact that briny is an 18 year old nurse is writing about what happened what we saw in the first 50 minutes uh her, her mistake that again ruined cecilia and robbie's life so i guess i'll say now that my my take when i saw the movie at age 18 and the take that I still stand by is that I thought the first 50 minutes was actually very good and very compelling. And uh, once we jump ahead to France and follow mostly Robbie and a little bit of Cecilia for like the next hour, uh, it really, really slows down for me. And then when, once we get Briny again in the last like four to five minutes, I think it picks up a little bit. And I think the last like 10 minutes with Vanessa Refgrave is excellent, like really, really good. But um, that middle section where we lose Trisha Ronan and just have James McAvoy for a while is is rough. Let me ask you two questions that I think address your reaction. 
whose story is this? That's a great question. There, there's some there's some narrative point of view questions I have. I, I think there's actually like an obvious answer to it, but then the movie um, undermines that by yes, I agree. The the, the extensive war sequences. Um, likewise, what's the point of the movie? Which I think again is answered pretty obviously in the last tenish minutes of the movie. But then if you look at the the middle like forty or whatever it is we're talking about, um, you could almost read this as like kind of a it's somewhat jingoistic celebration of like the tireless English effort in the Second World War. <laughs> and like it goes on these these weird different um thematic tangents that Yes, it does. Seemed over very overstuffed to me. There's no doubt in my mind that the very thing you're talking about is for at least for me the weakest. This is this is what brings the film down a bit for me. Yeah, because yep. Yep. it jumps around quite a bit. I think to the extent that there's a clear answer to the question whose perspective this is supposed to be, I think it's Bryony because that's the film finishes with mm-hmm. Vanessa yes. Redgrave yes, as yes. an elderly Bryony writing her book entitled Atonement. Ex- and opens with Bryony, 13 years old, writing a play. Right. So th- this is supposed to be Bryony's story. But to TJ's point, Bryony is not witness to many of the things we see in the film. Now, they try to, I think, cop out at the end because Vanessa Redgrave points out when she's being interviewed about her book that she obtained information from firsthand accounts. She did research. Yes, yeah. she yeah, did yeah. research. That said, uh, it doesn't. that does not explain or account for any or all of the scenes solely between right. and- uh, be- between Robbie and Cecilia in, in particular in particularity even when she's trying to concoct or invent what she thinks may have happened after the the alleged rape or the actual rape but wrongfully allegate wrong allegations yeah, against yeah, Robbie yeah. we see what we see early in that first 50 minutes the film actually does show us what the film is suggesting is actually happening, right? But if it's from Bryony's perspective, she can't possibly know that at the time. The film and and Joe Wright tries to do it. He he actually it's it's a it's an inventive way to do it. Music is very key to this film, and I'm, I have no doubt we're going to talk about it soon enough. The only time that music does not is not overlaid in in a scene during that first fifty minutes. When we are cutting to just Cecilia and Robbie, and it's from their perspective, and they're engaged with one another, the music is the score is absent. There's no music playing, which clues us in that this is apparently a moment when it's when it's true, or at least we're we're left to believe that this is the truth. It's it's not filtered through. Correct. Bryony's, you know, possibly flawed perspective. Exactly. Yeah. The rest of the film, when you hear the score, you can assume that it's it's through Bryony's lens. Yeah, yeah. It's her story. TJ, do you have something? Yeah, uh, my my issue with the middle section of the film wasn't so much like logistically, how does she know what happened? Because again, the movie at the end is kind of it kind of it kind of explains that, and and it's it's kind of about embellishment and whatnot, but and it's about truth and lying. My issue is um, dramatically, what am I watching? And here's what the answer is: I'm watching people walk um, through very desaturated landscapes. In a way that's very mid two thousands, like you brown a lot. Like they watched the shit out of like Clint Eastwood, low gray blue <laughs> wartime movies. Um, digital. Yeah. There's so much digital noise on there. It was pretty gross. Uh, people walking through that and then reading letters to one another. And I imagine that this section of the novel is probably done. I, I don't know. I didn't read the novel, but it's probably done in an epistolary format. 
which is great in literature. Not great to watch, though. It's hard to dramatize people just talking about their feelings. So let me say that you asked what the point of the movie was. I- well, that was kind of a rhetorical question, but... <laughs> yes, but let me let me try to answer. And I think that, like, to talk in screenwriting terms, the point of the movie is usually whatever act two is, right? And this has, like, a I guess a really, really long act one and a really short act three, but, like, the, the bulk of the movie is, like, Robbie sent away on a false accusation trying to get back to Cecilia. And then Bryony growing up and realizing her mistake and trying to atone for it, hence the title. And so the point of the movie is just, like, waiting for them to get back together, waiting for this right to this wrong to be righted and to be, you know, Joe so I guess, the, yeah, to be Joe righted. Thank you. Uh, so I guess like the, the movie is ultimately about like disappointment and lack of payoff. I was going to say, and, like, it's, it's an unsatisfying resolution. Given exactly. The fact that, yes. I mean, Which only makes that middle hour all the more frustrating though. Like, you know, why the hell did you make me sit through this? And could you have not made a half hour instead of an hour? Uh, not to be the guy that complains about runtime, but like to your point, TJ, like nothing really happens here besides you're just like, you're just waiting for them to get back together. And then they do, but also don't, you know? And uh, can we talk about the Dunkirk, uh, the oneer, the The tracking shot? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really don't like it. And like I'm, I'm the easiest lay in the world for these kinds of things. TJ's eyes just went really wide. Um, I'm a sucker for this kind of stuff, and I think this is like self indulgent crap. And like m- the example that I point to is like how to not do a long take. It sucks. I am TJ. Your so, mouth, your mouth is a gape. I am so thrilled to hear you say this because <laughs> my notes are bitchy as hell about this, and I thought I'm going to be the person it that shows sucks. up and complains. Here's okay. It let's sucks. get let's get this out of the way. It's technically okay. impressive. It took three it weeks is. and five takes and whatever. Great. Hundreds of people. Oh my hundreds gosh. of people had to, had to had to had to hit their marks. It's I get that. Unnecessary. Show offy. Yes. Very yes. stagey. Um, yes. It is. It's all scope. It's just a digression. Yes. Yes. As opposed yes. to something like the masterful ones done in Children of Men, which yep. are I was thinking about Children of Men as I was watching this, which yes. have within them like they're they're like short films almost. Right. This is just it's a digression. Um, there's there's kind of nothing really uh, within them that it's it's like it, I wrote it's like a timeout. Um. And people are just walking. They're just walking. The camera wanders away. The camera wanders away from our characters to like circle around a choir for no reason. Yes. Yeah. Which, again, technically speaking, okay. I will. I will say, and we. The, I believe the score won the Oscar. The score is fantastic. Yes, it did. I False. love the it music. It's a great score. I love the, False. the. I love what? False. It didn't win. You don't love the music. No, it, 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 did it, win. it did win. The piano's nice. I get it with. Can you, I'm sorry, you're gonna need to bleep me here, Josh. Can get worked up. I get it with sure. with the fucking typewriter keys. Oh, we're gonna put the <laughs> typewriter. Key. Get it? The piano keys are like typewriter keys because she's making up a play. Get it? Get the typewriter keys. Give me a fucking break with okay, the typewriter keys. While we're talking about the tracking shot, the the piano keys don't pop up here. There is just the the kind of lament. The, the the kind of sad yeah and it's beautiful and i love the i love the 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 combination it works so perfectly with the giant the diegetic sound of the the choir uh singing the hymn um and it it works well but i agree 
what is the purpose of this scene except to well oh these these poor these poor men including our main character one of our main characters Robbie uh they're 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 trapped in by circumstance well, I, I theoretically know the purpose of this of the shot in the scene is because as, as they arrive on the beach, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, as they arrive on the beach, the first thing they're told is there are 300 men on this beach and we're not going anywhere. So the purpose of the shot is to give you a sense of scale, right? Because like you do you do cover a fair amount of ground and like see a fair amount of people, but like the fact that the camera is only turned one direction the whole time is a fatal, fatal, fatal flaw. It it it's always it's the camera's always moving backwards, so like you're like. It's so like you never see what's like, but you know the characters are looking out beyond, like basically looking beyond the camera, and like it's giving a sense of like there's a lot of stuff beyond the camera. It never turns around and shows it to show it. So like it actually feels like we're told there's three hundred thousand people on this beach. It feels like three hundred. Well, honestly. part part of that is budget constraints because I think my understanding is then that don't right, do it. Well, then don't then, uh, exactly don't do yes, it. Yes, agreed. I'm getting there. You're jumping ahead of me, TJ. <laughs> Joe Wright has stated before that, yes, he wanted a large-scale beach sequence, which, of course, you don't get until Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. But agreed, if you can't if you can't do it to scale, don't do it. Because the problem is they then have to play with the, the, the washed-ashore ship and the, uh, the gazebo to kind of serve the as – blo- Freaking gazebo. Serve as props blocking the rest of the beach beyond. Exactly. Because yes. that way you yes. don't see the – and then, of course, as the, the camera does pan back and it backs up and backs up, all of a sudden we, we run into a um, kind of a, a, a like pier. Like a barracks a kind of thing, with yeah. A, with, a, with a bar or something on it. And so, yes – we're theoretically at the end of the beach, or at least this portion of the beach, but we've got obstacles in the way, so we can't see the extent of the beach and all of the people on it. Yeah, yeah. So, like, the, the sense of scale that this, like, long, long shot is supposed to give you, like, backfires, I think, entirely. And, like, again, I feel like there's barely 300, pe- 300 people in this beach, let alone 300,000. This is theoretically done as some kind of, like, it's just to please a certain audience, right? It's impressive. Well, again, even, even people who I'm, don't like, I'm the audience. I'm the audience for this. I'm the guy this is supposed to please. Even non-cinephiles are like, oh, that's that's like, you know, that's got to be I like, a, a, that's gotta be like porn shit. for you, right? It's like, it, it looks exactly. so good. I, and- it's porn for me. I eat this up. The, we, the reason TJ surprised is because this is the kind of stuff that I usually eat up, and I hate this. It sucks. It's a good microcosm for like the whole middle hour, honestly. Honestly, like... Pretty signifying nothing. Unfor- you know, I think we whatever. can agree. Yes, unfortunately, the the most talked about scene in the entire film comes off as gimmicky. And what what sucks is uh, our guy Roger Ebert loved it. Um, let me see if I can find the exact. Which I remember, I disown Roger Ebert as any sort of authority. I I well, I love I love Roger, but I love okay. So so you two's guy. Also, let's be honest. If we're going to have, I mean, we haven't had that discussion yet, or die, or really launched and jumped into it but at this point this is 2000 the end of 2007 uh roger definitely eased up on some of his criticism uh in the last like decade or so of his life so he is not he's not being quite as harsh or i think reviewing films uh which is natural over time you you change and you review films differently but he's definitely not uh hitting this film like he would have 30 years before yeah i'll I'll say this is a four-star review so he gave it four out of four and his portion of the dunkirk scene says uh quote the film cuts back and forth between the war in france and the bombing of london and there is a single apparently unbroken shot of the beach at dunkirk that is one of the great takes in film history achieved or augmented with cgi though it is roger 
shut the fuck up, dude. Like, come on, guy. (laughs) One of the great takes of film history. Get the fuck out of here. God. I don't know. I'm really disappointed in Roger. Ken, do you want to talk about the Vanessa Redgrave at all? Do you want to like spoil like what what happens at the end here? I uh, sure. So when we finally we've gotten through the the events of what happened during, I the I think war, this works. I, th- I think this part really works. By the way, so we get through and we're introduced to finally Vanessa Redgrave, who plays uh, the older uh, the older Bryony. Um, there's also there's an actress in there, uh, Ramula Garai, I think is I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Who I've I've not seen her in anything besides this. She was in uh, the Ian McKellen Royal Shakespeare Company, King Lear. She played Regan. Um, I'm sure a fine, accomplished actress. Not good in this. Um, she is wooden, and I wrote borderline sociopathic. Like, wow. she, her, her, her facial expressions, to me, very detached. Um she really likes leaving her eyes wide open, like just kind of an unnerving. She doesn't blink a lot. And do you think she's doing a who? who do you think she's doing an impression of Saoirse Ronan, or Saoirse Ronan's doing an impression of her? Like who's so trying to match who? So that's think? interesting. I think I think Ronan is our. I think uh, I think Ronan is the establishing uh, actress so yeah. um, here, and then uh, Gray and Redgrave are playing off of her to a degree. The only, I mean, the one continuing Redgrave factor, doesn't have too much. No, but the one continue. I mean, the the one reason you know, the one way we know instantly it's Bryony is the little hair clip off to the off to the, the side hair of clip her and hair. her and her mole on her cheek. Right. Yeah. But once we get through that 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 second act and we finally get to the end and a very rushed ending as it is, but we get to to kind of what's supposed to be a cathartic, I guess. I. I guess Joe Wright was hoping for catharsis well, it's, here. It's anti-catharsis, yes. I think, is the yeah. I mean, it's not. It's it's an it's a unsatisfying. It's an intentionally unsatisfying ending, I guess. But Vanessa Redgrave playing the older Bryony, she is. Uh, we've we we are led to believe she is an accomplished author by this time. It's her twenty-first novel, correct? And her and she's claiming her final author because she is dying. So this is going. This is her last chance to get something out there. And she's written an autobiographical film, finally explaining, or, or, or I guess should rephrase that, it's not really explaining what actually happened, because it's a story. And we find out that pretty much everything we saw in the second act is uh, fabricated, because in The fact, second half of the second act, yeah. Yeah, mo- yeah. Well, even then, to what we, we realize, she didn't actually encounter Cecilia and Robbie, as the second act shows her doing. Um, she didn't encounter them once. Once he had been taken away to jail, and and the the last Cecilia scene left. we see, bef- the last scene we see before we cut ahead in time to Vanessa Redgrave in modern times is uh, Bryony visiting her sister Cecilia in London, and Robbie is there, and she basically is given the chance. To- so not only do Robbie and Cecilia have some time together, but Bryony is given a chance to apologize and like is given instructions by Robbie on how to attempt to make things right by like you know retracting her testimony getting something signed whatever blah 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 blah, blah, blah. um right but and then Vanessa Redgrave says that didn't happen yeah of course it didn't happen because uh in fact Robbie didn't come back from France he died at Dunkirk uh he and died the last day of the evacuation yeah and uh and Cecilia died uh, during the blitz she was killed a few months after Robbie uh in an actual historic event the Balham 2 bombing um in a, a neighborhood of London. She, I didn't know that. Yeah, actual, it was an actual neighborhood tube stop. 
uh, that was not being used uh, with the the underground. It was being used as a people were taking shelter bomb from shelter, the bombing correct. in the tube station and residents yes. in the neighborhood. And this was true of all tube stations all over the country. They were trying to makeshift bomb shelters for neighborhoods. Um, this one, the bombs uh, caused explosions Broke with the, the gas and water lines, correct. and the the combined the ga- the gas combined with uh, the flooding in the tube because this is all well underground. Um, yeah, not everybody died in the tube station, but dozens of people were killed and hundreds were were seriously injured. And Cecilia allegedly was killed in that bombing. So neither one of them survived the war. In fact, both of them died in 1940. So there's still several more years of the war yet to go. So they, they not only didn't get that time together, but also Bryony did not get a chance to make things right with her sister Cecilia before her death. Correct. And she's attempting, she's explaining to the interviewer that this is her attempt her last attempt, her only attempt at atoning for her her sin, her wrong against them for life. She never actually says the word atonement no. or atoning. Other than, she uses different words, which really annoyed me for some well, reason. Well, <laughs> but the yeah, the only reference to the title is actually the only reference to the title of the film is in title is in referencing the title of her book, which is what the book is entitled. Yes, the book is called Atonement. Yes. And it it is a frustrating ending though because she she her reasoning <laughs> reasoning is that it's an act of kindness. She's gifting oh, them something. go to hell brian she is an anatomically correct word if i may be so bold like this is she is such a terrible yes terrible <laughs> person and she is so convinced that this is actually a good thing i love the line that apparently she made up that she gives to bobby i wrote it down i'm torn between breaking your neck here and throwing you down the stairs that's a great line of dialogue that is um, yeah so I want to hear this from you guys. Uh, I have an issue with the ending, and again, dramatically in the sense that what a terrible interview because he just lets her monologue and there's absolutely no pushback at all. Um, real, real quick, real quick, who plays the interviewer? Is that uh, uh, that's Anthony Min- uh, Minghella, right? It's Anthony Minghella, yeah. Six the months director. before his untimely passing, yeah. The director of English Patient and Cold Mountain and uh, some other pretty good movies. I don't yeah. even know if Sorry, he's actually credited in the movie. No, he's uncredited. Check. And and he he died six months after the movie came out from complications from surgery at age fifty four. Uh, sorry, TJ, go ahead. Yeah, she does monologue. He he just he lets her monologue, but like I think it's like a great monologue, so I don't mind as much. But there's there's no sort of pushback. Uh, so dramatically, I don't think it's a very interesting scene. But I I want to ask you guys: Do you think the intention of the story is? She did a kindness. She got her vindication. Or are you supposed to be infuriated? This is where I'm. I'm frustrated with the film. I'm just going to say I think the film is trying to lead us to believe both with the music, the sincerity, and the of, final image. Yes, the sincerity of Redgrave's performance, image. and then yes, the final shots. Basically, the fabricated uh, future of Cecilia and and Robbie living on a beach in southern England. Yes. Um, yeah, that's it's it's led to believe that yes, it's it's some kind of a kindness. I don't think it is. I'm infuriated. As I'm going to take the second option personally, I'm infuriated. I'm, I'm certainly frustrated, but like I think I think Redgrave is playing it like it's like she's she's you know she feels great shame and she doesn't believe her own bullshit about this is a kindness. But I think the movie is kind of trying to play it that way, at least a little bit, with that final image in the music. Oh no, I think yeah, I think the I think the film is exactly because you do get. I mean, Redgrave, like I said, I love Redgrave's performance in the film, and I think in 
any other film, she might sell it for me. But the problem is this film is just so infuriating. Redgrave's got a small the the one the one that like I was saying earlier, there's that scene in her dressing room. That scene I think is where the weight of the shame and guilt is most evident in in Redgrave's performance, and it's a brilliant scene. No words spoken. She also puts she she puts her head in her her head in her hands like right before this part and like asks the interviewer to take a break. I like that part too, where she kind of like covers her face. Yeah, they show her with her hands. Yeah, cutting the yeah. cutting the interview to go. Again, that's right. She goes back to take yeah. a break in the dressing room before coming back out and exactly. continuing the interview. And but she's so sincere in her answer and her explanation for why she she created this false autobiography, um, and. Yeah, the film seems to be wanting us to believe that, yeah, she's she's doing what she can to atone. The reality is she can't. She can't atone. It is so, impossible. But, but, uh, yeah, yeah, but, like, I, I'm getting that. I guess my question is n- not about her sincerity, but about, like, <laughs> I don't want to say the director. I don't want to say the screenwriter, the novel writer. Pretend the, the movie has a brain. Um, is the movie saying, gee, wasn't that nice of her? And while the power so. and while the power of stories, or is the movie saying we all make mistakes when we're like thirteen years old? Most of us um, learn from the mistake. I had a pocket knife and I cut my hair. My bangs grew back. Not a big deal. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, most people don't ruin someone's life and kill them, right? And she literally sort of couldn't undo what what she did. She couldn't sort of make up for it. So is the movie saying like? Oh, she look. She did her best, even in her last novel. Or is it saying more kind of ambiguously? The only way she's able to live with herself is for her to believe that she atoned in a certain way. But there really there are some bells that can't be unrung. I think the film. I think the film is trying to let you believe that there is a way. The only way, in some instances, to atone is through story, because the film which is in and of itself a story, I think that it's suggesting that her only option, sometimes the story is the only way out. It's preferable to reality. Reality is sad to be simple For the people that survive. For the people that survive it is. And for everybody else. The idea is you're telling, you're, you're making people feel better. Reality sucks. Here's a story that gives people hope. And it's BS. I'm telling you, like I'm, I'm telling you what I think the movie is trying to sell, and I'm not buying it because I, I guess I'm more cynical, certainly more than I was the first time I probably saw this film. But I, I'm just, I'm just infuriated. Like this is a, <laughs> this person is not likable. She hasn't been well, likable. I don't think the whole movie. I don't think it's asking. I don't think it's asking us to find her likable. I'm kind of starting to. I'm talking myself into the perspective that, like, the, the movie's treating this as a tragedy. And, like, the fact that the best she can do is write a fake story where they get a happy ending is, like, woefully short of what justice would be, you know? Like, it's, it's you know... Correct. Woefully lacking, I yeah. guess. And, like, I think the movie's acknowledging that. And, like, maybe the final shot where, like, they're happy and the cliffs of Dover is more like a, this is what could have been, but... I, but that's just it. The film ends with... Uh, the film ends on a note of hope. And what it ends on? I don't know. Is, I don't know if it's hope. I think it is because it's, it, it, it's a pleasant, hope for happy what? ending. They're they're living in hope an for idyllic what, post, literally a scene out of a postcard. But do you remember what the first image of the film is? 
It is a dollhouse to made to look like the actual English house where they are staying. So the film begins and ends on construction, right? Over over the dollhouse, which is a construction. Bryony's plaything. A fabrication. Her playthings yeah. as she's f***ing yeah. typing. And then the There's end. There's a lot of typewriter in the sound design, yes. And then and then at the end we have uh, what we know is a fabricated house, right? That they're going to that is the result of her typing. I think when you when you mirror those that first and last image, the book the bookend of that, I think it it's more complicated than just look at them frolicking on the cliffs of Dover. I mean, I agree. I'm I'm coming I'm coming around, I guess. Like I said, let me repeat that I really like this last ten minutes. I think this is really good stuff, but it just it just it just frustrates frustrates me by design given the the middle hour and like it again. I just I don't really like the middle hour as is, and the last ten minutes, despite being intriguing and good and surprising, it makes me like the middle hour even less. I'm not sure that I I guess what I'm saying is I'm, I don't want to give the the movie too much credit. I'm not sure that that is what they're intending. I love that you're seeing that, DJ, and I would love if that were true. And maybe it is. Maybe I'm just not giving Wright and and the filmmakers enough credit. I just don't think I don't think that way. I think the film is trying to end on a on a hopeful note, on a more positive note, because of all the crappy stuff they showed us earlier in the movie that these people have dealt with, and all of a sudden the realization that what we saw was fake, and these people lived a horrible short life. Uh I think it's trying to be like, look, sometimes reality sucks, but stories are a way to kind of escape that reality and find the happiness we can't always get in reality. Like, the world is not perfect. I Bad mean, things will juxt- happen. Ju- yeah, it's like a happy final. Like, it's a bittersweet final image, but like juxtaposed with like Vanessa Redgrave's confession. I don't think it's like a, a hopeful ending. Like ho- again, hopeful for what? Well, and and there's an imp- there's an important detail here as well. It's it's her last novel because she's dying and she's dying. She's losing of, her memory of a degenerative memory disease. So what's what, what's tragically ironic about that is um, she is going to get to live for a while without the knowledge of what she did. Yes. My, I was going to say the other thing that jumps out at me when she says that, the, what it is she's dying from, the loss of memories. For me, my instant reaction is that calls into question literally everything we've just seen. I think the implication though is that she did her research and wrote this book before, like, this got too bad. Well, the the suggestion, I think, the implication is that she started writing it in London, right? That's what we see her yes. typing. So this is That's a story she's doing when she was 18. It's yeah. a story she's been sitting with. She said it's her 21st novel, but also kind of her first novel is what she says in the interview. Yeah. So we all have strong feelings about the ending, I guess. And we all have negative feelings about the middle. I'm still pretty high on the first 50 minutes, though. Um, Is there anything else you want to cover here? I think the first 50 minutes, I think I agree with you. The first 50 minutes are really uh, pretty well done. Um, I I actually like the look of it. I like like the, the imagery used. I know that it might be a little obvious, but... I think it works given what they're suggesting, particularly the the dichotomy with later on what, you know, this is the fact that it's dreamlike. It's so far back that she's having to parse through memories. Also memories of a woman who are, who's losing, who are, is actively losing her memories. Um, it works for me. That said, it's just, I, I'm not, I'm not sure that the film works in the end, at least sufficiently enough because I'm left totally unsatisfied. 
Like it's a it's a well made film that I'm not thoroughly pleased with by the end. What do you think, TJ? Just like overall stuff here, closing thoughts on like the movie itself. I don't talk about some award stuff, but just the movie itself. What do you think? Uh, a closing couple, thoughts. Couple notes I didn't get to. Um, yeah, Romola Garai looks like a mixture of Elle Fanning and Elizabeth Moss. That's she, like so. That's the thing. Okay, so so again, I had not seen this in fourteen years, and like. So back then, I didn't know who Trisha Ronan was. I didn't know who Juno Temple was. I didn't know who Benedict Cumberbatch was when I first saw this movie. I, I, I think this is probably the first time I saw James McAvoy. Um, so I was like, kind of like half expecting someone that I now recognize to be playing the middle-aged, uh, the 18-year-old Bronny. And I was like, I wonder if it's going to, is it going to be like, Elizabeth Moth was like, was a name that crossed my mind. I'm like, does Elizabeth Moth play 18-year-old Bronny? Like, uh, and then it was just somebody I'd never seen before and haven't seen since. Um, the writing for one of his uh war buddies the dialogue is terrible every line is like hey governor governor are we gonna do this like holy shit it was it was like someone who's never met an english person before being like how do you think british people talk it sounds like my midwestern dad doing an impression of a british person yeah Uh, a derogatory impression of a british person (laughs) and then the last thing i wrote when they were talking about in that scene that's made up, trying to figure out who actually might have done the crime. Uh, the other guy's name was Hardman, and I wrote Hardman, LOL. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and also uh, Alfie Allen from Game of Thrones also pops up in the uh, in that first section, who's one of the accused who gets his name cleared. Um, also, quick shout out I... to uh, Bobby's mom. It's Brenda Blethyn. Yeah, Brenda Blethyn. Um, Robbie's she's mom. A, yeah, she's a she's a solid actress. I like her. She is. Um, and in the character actress Harriet Walter playing a very Harriet Walter role as uh, Cecilia and Bryony's mother, um, I feel like any more any more notes. Oh no, that was it. Well, I, I will just quickly say um, I, for the most part, I I actually like McAvoy's performance. Um, I think Kira Knightley's a bit wooden here. If I'm being completely honest, she doesn't do it for me. Nor am I. Imp- I like her in this. The weakest part in the first in the first fifty minutes might be cecilia and robbie's relationship i just don't i don't really buy into it yeah it's not the strongest of performances between well, like the, they're there's no sensuality there's nothing compelling i think about it's the writing too. yeah there's a lot of like um implied history that we don't see and like you kind of just i guess to your point you need to sell that in the yeah, performances i think mcavoy and, does a lot of heavy lifting during the scene in which he's writing the letter let's just say that like that to me is the strongest suggestion that oh, there are serious feelings here, as opposed to this kind of, eh, we're antagonistic towards each other, and we're all... Him leaning back in his chair and smoking a cigarette, rubbing his forehead, and start stopping and starting typing letters. Yeah, it's, that's... Well, it's the voiceover. It's it's as he's typing the letter. It's the voiceover and what he's putting into the letter. That's the He's doing some heavy lifting during that scene to get the relationship sold. Shout out to 18-year-old Josh for having the correct take on this movie, which is that it really goes downhill after it jumps ahead in time at the 50 minute mark, but the ending's kind of cool. That's, that's my take then. It's my take now. Cool. All right. I'll take your silence as <laughs> agreement. Let's see. This was the first Oscars I paid attention to, which I think is kind of fun. Um, so th- these will always hold a special place in my heart for the 75 series. I kind of had some questions about like how these nominees would fare in modern day, oscar um environments and like it kind of feels silly to do that now because i feel like you know this was not that long ago um i think if this movie came out today it would st- it would still be nominated for best picture um what do you guys think yes no i i think it would um because it it, it scratches the like 
Darkest Hour itch that they have, also directed by Joe Wright. However, awesome. Joe Wright. however, I'm curious. I don't have an answer for this, um, but I'm going to ask a provocative question and then just drop it. Um, I wonder how this would be received post Me Too. Interesting. Yeah. Like a, a a man falsely accused of impropriety and his life being ruined by the accusation. Is that what you're I don't know. I mean, it's, it's rather complicated in, in its gender politics. Um, who gets away with what? Who's believed? Who? Like, it's, it's, it, it, it's complicated in that sense. And I just don't know if anyone would really want to touch it right now. It's, um, well, I mean, it's, it's more class, right, than sex. Because the difference is there actually is... There actually is a rape. It's not just someone being falsely accused of raping and she's she's lying well, about often, having been. Often in, in Me Too scenarios, there actually is a rape too, right? No, but I'm saying that the but the criticism is when you create that in a, in a television show or movie, you're suggesting that, well, there's not always – sometimes she's making it up. Here, she's not – they're not making up the fact that there was in fact a rape. They're They're making up the fact that someone was using her preconceived and misguided – interpretation of events to wrongly accuse someone of being the perpetrator um so i i think yeah it's more complicated because i don't think it's as straightforward as some of the other uh examples in media that are are most often criticized i mean the fact is you do have a teenager and it's creepy and it's weird and the film suggests that like the, the Benedict Cumberbatch character is all kinds of problematic and bad. I mean, there's that scene in the playroom with Juno Temple and her twin brother, her younger the twin brother. The seduction. Brothers. Yes. Yeah. His, his seducing her with a bar of chocolate is easily one of the most kind it's of fair. scenes. You could say it's Doctor Strange. <laughs> Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God the mics weren't on yet when we did a long riff of the characters that Benedict Cumberbatch has played and uh, made puns about him being a rapist in this movie. Um, I'm glad that will not see the light of day because it was not recorded. Thank goodness. That that thought hadn't occurred to me, TJ, the, the me too of it all. Um, I think it would still get nominated for Best Picture, even despite the stickier politics in that regard, just because it's still a World War II movie. It's still a romantic epic of sorts, and it still has a great ending. And I think that gets you a long way uh, to quote Brian Cox as um, Robert McKee in Adaptation, The Last Act Makes a Film, Dazzle in, in, in the End, You Gotta Hit. Um, so I think this gets on me today. I think it, I, I would agree, given the fact that we've got, we're working with 10 nominees today. It is interesting. I don't think this gets nominated today if we're back to five. I'm just saying. Eventually, eventually you guys need to stop hedging. Because I think like a lot during the 75 series, we said this will get nominated today, but only if we have 10 nominees. And I think we need to like just well, be but that's the reality say, we live yes, in. The, no, the, the age is different. So well, this did get nominated with five nominees, and, and I'm yeah, saying, I think I think depending on the year, and I and I'm saying I, th- I think this I think this loses out. Even if you take the exact same films from 2007, you bring them today, and but you only nominate five instead of ten. I think Atonement doesn't make it. Given some of the other films of 2007, which we'll talk about much later, I I think it. I don't know that it's top five. So I think that I kind of had this movie a bit at arm's length when it came out because there were some other 2007 Best Picture nominees that I enjoy quite a lot more than this one that we'll get to. But um, Atonement won Best Film at the Golden Globes, and it also won Best Film at the BAFTAs. So I think there was like 
a sneaking suspicion that it might win Best Picture at the Oscars. And had that happened, holy shit, I would have rioted. My 18-year-old, stupid, stupid kid self would have rioted. Uh, for the first Oscars that I ever gave a shit about, I would have probably given up on them entirely. So yeah, this one, uh, Best Motion Picture at the Golden Globes. That's kind of it, though. Like, I'm scrolling down. It didn't, like, win anything else. Like, it, it only won Best Picture and nothing else. Uh, the Coens won Best Director. The Coens also won Best Screenplay. Did they win Best Director? Wait. I think at the Golden Globes, it was Julian Schnabel yeah. who ends up getting... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was yeah. Julian Schnabel for The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Coen That's Brothers did wild. Win, Coen Brothers did win the uh, directing award at BAFTA, though. I think that might be... That's what I was yeah. thinking of. They won the... So, it, Atonement won Best Film at the BAFTAs. Did not win Best British Film, as we talked about. Um, but the Coens won Best Director, um, and it didn't win its adaptive screenplay. It lost to Diving Bell and the Butterfly for Best Adaptive Screenplay. Um... It did not win that cinematography Oscar was so clearly going forth that long take. It lost to Deacons for No Country for Old Men. Um, it won Best Production Design at the BAFTAs. It, but then at the Oscars, it ended up only winning score, um, despite being nominated for because it had the clicking of keys in the score. You know, like a typewriter. That's right. It did. I distinctly remember watching the Academy Awards that year, and I just, I very much remember. The, the, when it got to the score, this was back when they would like they'd have a voiceover and they'd sing the nominee, the score, yeah. and there'd be a little clip with the score. And this was the typewriter; it was the piano and the typewriter that was the example used. Yes, real quick, this was nominated at the Oscar for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actress for Saoirse Ronan, Best Adapted Screenplay for Christopher Hampton, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, Best Visual Score for Dario Marianelli, which it won. Um, and I'm going to put a big fat asterisk next to its uh, Oscar for best score because based on a technicality, Johnny Greenwood's score for There Will Be Blood was not eligible, well, yeah, and we will which I think is maybe the best film score of the 21st century. I have century, no personally. doubt we will be talking about that uh, soon enough. Yes, we will. Stay tuned. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm gl- uh, you know, glad's a weird word to use, but, I'm glad, you know, the fact that this one original best original score and nothing else of the Oscars I'm kind of okay with. Um, not because I don't think this movie's good. I do think this movie's good. Um, flawed, but good. But it had some pretty heavy competition in the best picture field and in like you know the, the major category fields, as we'll discuss in, in future episodes in this series. I think that might be all I have on Atonement. Do you guys have anything else? TJ, any, any closing thoughts on Atonement before we, we break and get out of here? Um, I think you ask typically like what... Did it deserve its nomination? Sure. No. Yeah. No. I don't think this is a very good no. movie. L- let me address that real quick. Yeah, I I, th- I think it's good. Uh, but 2007 had some really, really, really good movies, even outside of the ones that were nominated for Best Picture, of which, you know, I, I th- three of the Best Picture nominees, I think, are the, some of the best movies I've ever seen. <laughs> and um, But they're also, like... And we can get to this in our 2007 like recap episode at the end of the series, but there are some other movies that I would have much, 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 much rather seen in Atonement's place in the Best Picture field. So those are those are two different things. Like one, yes, there were other better movies in my opinion, but just on its own, I don't think this is a very good movie. Like uh, Eber, Siskel and Ebert used to do a thumbs up, thumbs down thing. You know, uh, I thumbs down this one. I just. I have a tepid thumbs up. I I, I, I don't think it's a good movie. I think it's a technically well-made film that 
it's the flaws are too glaring. It's I think I think Joe Wright knows what he's doing. Uh, just the, the product is not there. Like it doesn't succeed for me in the end. It's it's well made, but I could leave it if I'm being honest. I think honestly, I think honestly, Shersha Ronan and the last ten minutes save it for me. Um, to again evoke Robert McKee, the last act makes a film. Uh, the movies that get A plus cinema scores are always the ones that have like really p- strong endings. Because, like, people walk out of a theater, like, thinking very highly of something if it has a satisfying ending. But are those people serious film people? <sighs> um, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. But I don't know. Uh, again, it's a tepid thumbs up. It's tepid. Look, rating rating a film is, is... Rating a film after you see it is kind of like drinking and driving, okay? Don't do them together. If you're going to watch a movie, yeah. give it some time before you... Like, people walking out of the theater being like, oh, this is an A-plus film because, as you said, your mind is automatically thinking about what you just saw. The most recent aspect. If the, the ending thing, is strong, yeah, yeah. they walk out of the theater and you know, your reaction is, oh, I actually... That was that was a really well-made film. This is the problem with... Like, if you're going to, if you're going to give a thumbs up or thumbs down, think on it a bit. I'm somewhere in the three to three and a half out of five stars realm on this. Which again is tepidly positive. I think I gave it so. three and a half mainly because it. I think it, it's fine. It's technically well done. Yeah, yeah. it's fine. And there's. Strong, I think I'm probably about three. And there's and strong half, elements. Yeah. There are several strong elements for me in the film that I think it's perfectly watchable. I have no problem. I, I think I agree. It's a. I think it's. It's perfectly fine. It's a. It's perfectly fine. Yeah. Can do so. That's, that's my. That's exactly right. I think that's what we end on. It's perfectly fine, but it's also a thumbs down <laughs> from the other guy, TJ. Thanks for listening. This is the first episode of our 2007 series. I hope you join us for our subsequent episodes because I think they're going to be really, really good. Um, I think this will be our <laughs> not to like shit on the product. I think this will be our weakest episode of this series, personally, because I think this is the movie that. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm think, interested to hear. I'm our... interested to hear what TJ says about. I, I guess our next one alphabetically will be juno and i right? think i think that <laughs> i think juno will offer some entertaining tune in i think that will be a spirited yes, discussion I agree. particularly from our friend tj over there who's <laughs> keeping his mouth shut right now i don't know where you guys get that idea because <laughs> we were we were friends when Juno <laughs> came out and i heard you say some things when Juno came out and in subsequent years honestly um so yeah tune in next week we'll I'm, talk about I'm juno it'll be forward. very spirited i haven't seen it since it came out i'm looking forward to approaching with an honest mind oh, an open mind too. honest to blog i'm just <laughs> I'll, I'll take past impressions and just shake them like an etch a sketch and uh so tune in again next week and we'll see you then home skillet. Yeah.